0: This is episode number 367 with Jay Shetty. The Melissa Ambrosini Show. Welcome to The Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thoughts leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Before we kick off this episode, I need to tell you about my brand new book, Purposeful, 10 Steps to Overcoming Fear and Living Your Dream Life. This is an Audible original, which means it's only available on Audible and it's out right now. I'm so excited for this book because one of the common things I get asked is, how do I find my purpose in life? How do I know what my purpose is? And this book teaches you exactly how to uncover and live your purpose. So if you want to live a purposeful life, overcome fear and live your dream life, this is for you. You can get it totally free when you sign up for a free trial with Audible. How cool is that? All you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash purposeful. That's P-U-R-P-O-S-E-F-U-L-L to get it in your ears today. I also have some purposeful bonuses that you can get your hands on. I'm so excited for you to hear this book and cannot wait to hear your thoughts. So for this week only, if you rate and review the book on Audible, I will send you free access to my Manifestation Masterclass. All you need to do is send a screenshot of your review to hello at melissaambrosini.com and I will send that over to you straight away. Enjoy Purposeful. Jay is an award-winning storyteller, number one podcast host, video creator, and former monk. Since launching his channel in 2017, Jay's viral wisdom videos have been viewed over 5 billion times, and he has a following of over 32 million people across social media. Over 2 million students have completed one of Jay's online courses on Purpose, Relationships, and Happiness. His online genius community has thousands of members from 140 countries, and there are meetups in over 100 cities globally. His podcast, On Purpose, is the number one health podcast in the world with over 1 million downloads per week. Guests have included everyone from Khloe Kardashian to Kobe Bryant, Giselle and Russell Brand. Jay was named in the Forbes 30 Under 30 for being a game changer in the world of media, and he received both the Streamy and Shorty Award for being the best health and wellness creator in 2018 and 2019. And in this episode, we chat about Jay's story and why and how he decided to live a life of service and as a monk, this story is fascinating. Why strict discipline is the secret key to achieve true freedom how to distinguish a valid observation from a harmful judgment, how Jay's spot, stop and swap principle will help you transform your negative judgment of others into compassion and kindness. Why checking in with our future selves is crucial to live life to its fullest, the TIME acronym and how it will set you up for success, how to build healthy relationships with our phones inside our home environment, how to remove the noise from social media. And we also chat about simple and effective techniques to significantly reduce anxiety, plus so much more. And for everything we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 367. And now let's get this party started. Let's bring on the incredible Jay Shetty. Jay Shetty, I am so excited to finally have you on the show, but before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: (laughs) Absolutely, Melissa. So I eat the same thing every single day and it's oatmeal. And I think I've been eating the same thing every single day for for far too long now, but it's reliable, practical and and easy to do.
0: Oh, and so delicious. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I had the same thing. So we are twinning in that area. (laughs) I love that. So, Jay, you are so hard to miss on social media. You have such a cult following. Take us back to before this all started for you. So before you were a monk, take us back to what you were doing in your life then and how you stepped into becoming a monk, and then your Instagram and all of the videos and everything that you create, how that exploded. So take us back to before you were a monk.
1: Absolutely. So I was born and raised in London. And in primary school, I was pretty much bullied for being overweight and one of the few Indian kids in school. So I didn't grow up at a school or in an area where I was surrounded by a lot of Indian people. And so I was probably one of like two or three Indian people at my early school, which is age between four to 11 primary school in London. And, and yeah, I was bullied for being for being overweight as well. I grew up much larger than, than I am right now and, and really went through a lot of bullying during that time. And that was a really interesting moment for me because I was coming back home to a culture of studying hard, working hard, but then going to a school where I didn't really feel I was in that environment. That helped me thrive. And then as I grew older in my teens, I started to rebel more. I started to try and find ways to feel an experience and a thrill. And I realized it wasn't because I wanted to do anything wrong. I just got involved in some of these wrong circles. And I just started to question whether doing everything right was the only way to live life. So I grew up in a family where I often joke. You could either be a doctor or a lawyer or a failure because all my cousins are doctors and in the medical profession, and I had no affinity towards that. And I got involved in a circle where we just got in everything from violence through to drugs through to just getting involved in in really small, petty things. Again, not badly intentioned, just, just making mistakes as a teenager. And I had this opportunity to go and hear a monk speak. And at the time, in my teens, I'd really got involved in reading nonfiction books and particularly biographies and autobiographies. And I loved reading about people who'd gone from nothing to something. And I loved reading, not about the result or what they achieved, but the sacrifice, the pain, the pressure, the challenges. And I remember two of the first books I ever read, Back to Front, were David Beckham's autobiography and Dwayne The Rock Johnson's autobiography. This was when he was still a wrestler. And I remember reading those books and reading about David Beckham's discipline of practicing every single day and Dwayne The Rock Johnson's upbringing and facing depression. And I used to just get really enamored by people's stories. And so I would go in here, celebrities, athletes, CEOs, entrepreneurs, anyone that I possibly could. And by the way, this was before podcasts like this one. So you actually had to go to events physically in the city and turn up and get a ticket or whatever it may have been. And my university would run events too. And my friends had started to get involved in spirituality at the time and meditation and well-being. This is in you know, 2006, 2007. And they were inviting me to hear a monk speak. And I said to them that I'd only go if we could go to a bar afterwards. Like that was the <laughs> state of my consciousness at the time. And I, I kind of had this arrogance or skepticism around, what am I going to learn from a monk? Like I'm interested in people who've gone from nothing to something, not nothing to nothing. And and I was going there with this, yeah, this this cynicism or this, projected arrogance around, well, probably not going to get anything out of this, but let's go anyway. And you know, this is those ironic, humbling moments of life where you go somewhere expecting nothing and you feel like you found everything. And the truth is that that moment had such an impact on me because the monk was speaking about living a life of service and living a life that was lived for impacting and helping others. And I'd never heard about that as a teenager, I'd never really been exposed to that. It was always about how much money can you make and how creative can you be and can you start a business or you know, will you be the best at X, Y, Z or whatever it may be. Whereas with him, he was talking about service and purpose and meaning. And, and I got so drawn to that, that I spent the rest of my summer and Christmas holidays, half of them interning at corporate finance companies in London, which I thought was my professional path. And I'd spend the rest of them training with him and the other monks in India. And when I graduated, I decided to turn down my corporate job offers in the city of London and go and live as a monk and live and travel across India and Europe, living that lifestyle. So I I left everything behind and went off and did that.
0: Wow. What were three of the biggest things that you learned during your time as a monk?
1: Absolutely. And I know you asked me about the social media part too. So we'll, we'll get to that. I just, I wanted to pause and, and, and dissect some of this with you. So I'd say the three biggest things I learned as a monk, and it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard question to answer because there, there were just so many incredible lessons that I learned. I'd say that the first one was this sense of having an incredible discipline and powerful routine. So recognizing that you needed to have discipline in life to create any sort of impact internally or externally. And that came through a set of daily rituals and practices that help you set yourself up as a shield and almost like putting on armor to be ready for whatever's going to happen throughout the day. So it's almost like monk warrior training around recognizing that life's going to throw a lot of challenges at you mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically. And these daily rituals are so powerful at getting you ready for that.
0: Yeah. I was just going to say, my husband always says, discipline is freedom.
2: <laughs> yes, it's true.
0: Because, you know, we are both. And I'm sure you are the same and we can dive deeper into this. But yeah, we're both very disciplined with our spiritual rituals and routines as well. And the reason being is because it allows me to thrive and to feel really free and alive.
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I think you're completely right. I think the Vedic texts that I study they talk about this principle of we think freedom means to have complete access and choice whenever we want. And actually, that can lead us down the wrong path. And discipline and setting powerful boundaries and barriers for yourself can actually lead to more freedom because you can actually do what you want to do. And and so I completely agree with you and your husband on that. It's you know it's very much aligned with exactly the messages that I'm sharing and and that I've learned as well. And the second thing I'd say I learned as a monk, which was a really, really powerful perspective, was to never judge the moment to never label a person and to never define anything as negative or positive or good or bad?
2: Oh,
0: I mean, like, yes, amazing. In reality, can we actually do that? Because from the moment we wake up in the morning, we're judging, we're labeling. We look in the mirror and we say, I look tired, I look fat, I look this. So from the moment we wake up, we're labeling and we're judging. So, can we actually get to that place of no right and wrong, no judging, no labeling?
1: So, there's a really good difference and distinction to make there between observing and judging. So, when you make an observation like, I look tired today, that's a positive observation because you can do something about it. Whereas, if you have a judgment and just go, I look so tired, I'm ugly, I'm exhausted, I'm, you know, those are judgments where you're not allowing it to evolve or grow or transform. You're just saying it's almost fatalistic. It's almost like that is it. That's a judgment. A judgment is where we make something a lot more long-term and a lot more conclusive. Whereas an observation is something where you're saying, this is a initial thought, and I'm still going to allow it to transform and evolve and grow. So if you make an observation using your example of, I look tired today in the morning, okay, well, maybe I didn't hydrate well yesterday. Maybe I need to get more sleep today. Maybe I need to eat better today. Maybe I do need to take a nap in the middle of the day. You can actually do something about it because it's an observation. And so observations are recommended, but judgments or conclusions or fatalistic descriptions or definitions kind of limit us from what that moment can become. So for example, if you receive a piece of news. And we always say, oh, do you want the good news or the bad news? As soon as you say something is bad news, you almost stop realizing that there could be a powerful opportunity within that moment that could actually open the door to something more incredible. And that's what judgment is. Judgment is that's bad. It can never be anything good. It's done. It's useless. Whereas observation says, okay, that's not what I was expecting, or that's not what I wanted." But let me see what this is trying to share with me. Let me see. Let me excavate. Let me discover. So that distinction, I think, between observation and judgment, which you've encouraged me to share, is really important. And I think that, that ability to discriminate and know the difference between observation and a judgment is, is really thinking like a monk in that principle and the, the art of discrimination in a positive sense, as opposed to living with these fatalistic conclusions.
0: I love that clarification. So powerful. And it allows you to go somewhere from that as opposed to full stop, this is how it is. There's opportunity for growth. So do you catch yourself ever now slipping into that judgment mode? And if you do, then how do you switch it?
1: Oh, all the time. So <laughs> it's 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 all the time. Like I, I find myself judging or, you know, making a conclusive decision on something or opinion about someone. And I did this recently, actually. I met someone probably earlier this year, and I met them very briefly, and I made a judgment of them. And when I say I made a judgment of them, I, in my limited time or experience with them, made a judgment of what I thought they were like. And I was holding on to that. And then recently, I reconnected with them, and it was a much longer conversation. And I've realized I really like them and that actually we had, we actually had the opportunity of having this amazing conversation and this amazing exchange. So what I try to do is I try to remember scenarios of where I've been wrong. And I don't try and disprove myself, but I allow the other person to disprove my initial hypothesis or my initial thought process. So it's not like I'm fighting against myself saying, oh my God, you have to trust everyone and everyone's perfect and everyone's amazing. It's not that, but it's saying, well, wait a minute, what if someone met me on a bad day? Mm. Or what if someone met me and they don't know that, I know that some of my family member was in hospital or maybe my, you know, not, I don't have kids, but I'm just speaking like maybe someone's kid was struggling or whatever it may be. Like We just have no idea what's going on. And when you make a snapshot judgment, the best analogy that I love about this is like if you walked in to a movie halfway through and you saw a clip of someone crying, you may think that they are crying because someone's done something wrong to them. But when you watch the movie from the start to the finish, you may actually realize that they were the person who'd just been caught and they were crying because they've been caught of a crime that they committed. And so, or the other way around, where you just can't judge someone on a snapshot of this tiny piece of life that we may share with someone. And, and I try and remind myself of moments when my judgments have eluded me or when my judgments have misdirected me. And I also allow to myself to realize that I wouldn't want to be judged in that way, or I wouldn't want to be dealt with in that way. So how can I also be more compassionate and empathetic and giving to someone to, to allow themselves to grow. A more practical or tactical step is a principle in the book that I lay out called spot, stop, and swap. And what I mean by that is it's really important to spot when we make negative judgments, negative conclusions, or negative beliefs about something. For example, do you find it when you're scrolling through social media and now you're judging people based on how they look and how you look and how you feel? Or do you find yourself doing it when you're watching the news and you feel negative now because you're taking on that energy? The first thing to do is spot where and when you're triggered to feel that way. The second step is to stop and ask myself, is this how I want to feel? Is this feeling useful? Is it helpful? Is it beneficial to me? Chances are the answer is more likely than not to be no, it's not useful. And the third is to swap it with a higher thought or a alternative higher activity. So you may swap it with saying, well, instead of getting lost in that, I'm going to read a book, or I'm going to listen to a podcast like this, or I'm going to go out on a walk, or I'm going to swap my thought process of judging to remind myself, wait a minute, last time you judged, that didn't go so well. So let me remove judgment let me make an observation, little marker, a little pencil. It's almost like making it in pencil rather than in like a big black permanent marker. And I think that's what I mean by judgment and observations. Observations are made in pencils, whereas a judgment is made in a big black permanent marker.
0: I love that. That's a really great visual to have as well. So yeah, I think for me, personally, it's something that I'm really mindful of, all of my judgments that I have on myself and of other people. And it's something that I do really want to be mindful of and transcend and be aware of. And I think if we were all just a little bit less judgmental of other people and more compassionate, because you said something really important, like we have no idea what's going on for anyone else. We don't know whether they just found out someone was ill or their partner just left them. We have no idea. And so we really do need to remember that everyone's doing the best that they can in that moment. You know, no one's actively walking around going, I'm going to be a horrible person today. I don't think anyone's really walking around like that. You know, people are just getting by and they're they're doing their best, especially this has been a huge year for a lot of people massive changes, not being able to see family, losing jobs and things like that. So just remember that compassion and kindness are key to ourselves and to other people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Couldn't agree more.
0: What is the third thing that you learned as a mother? Yeah,
1: I'm trying to share with you ones that I'm really reflecting on with you right now, rather than sharing some that I I may have shared before. And so I'm diving deep. I think One of the biggest ones I'd say is to truly be able to live your own life on your own path. And so this ability to turn out the opinions, expectations, and obligations of other people. When you become a monk, it's almost like the greatest act of rebellion in society because it's completely against the grain right it's it's completely stepping out and doing something that's totally saying this way doesn't work it's so counterintuitive that you really build up this resilience and strength to say well yeah i need to walk my path i need to be confident in what i'm doing and let me not get misdirected and you know misinformed by the opinions expectations and obligations of others so often the decisions we make Are based on the opinions of others. So often, the things we're pursuing are based on the expectations people have of us. And so often, everything that we're looking after in our life is based on some sort of obligation, and we stop ourselves from discovering our truest root selves. And so, for me, living as a monk allowed me to remove that clutter, that noise, any of that energy that was there to really deeply connect with my own self. And to get really comfortable with my own company, moving away from all of that noise. So I'd say those are three of so many, but those are ones that I haven't necessarily shared before and the ones that came to my mind today.
0: I love it. Have you read Bronnie Ware's book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying?
1: I love that book. I absolutely love that book. I think it's incredible. Looking at those regrets, the first time I read the book and the first time I saw those regrets, they have made me make so many better decisions in life. Me too. And I often do that meditation where I will meditate on meeting myself at age 80, 90, 100 on my deathbed. And I ask myself, will I have been happy if I did or didn't make this decision? And just having that reflection on thinking about how will I feel about this at the end of my life, it's completely clear as to what I need to do today. And that's what I love about that meditation. And it was actually one that I did before I switched, not just from my monk life to my corporate life, but from my corporate life to what I do today. It was based on answering that question. I had no idea whether media was the right path for me. I never believed that any of what I have today as a platform or whatever it's called, I never believed any of it was possible. And when I took that leap of faith in my own way, I took it based on the fact that I knew that if I didn't try, I would look back at 80, 90 or 100 years old or however long I live and look back and think, why didn't I give it a go? Like, why didn't I just give it a go? And now I look back and I think, wow, like literally if I did not give it a go, it would have been a terrible decision and I would have had a lot of regrets.
0: Mm, Looking at death can really make us live. It really can.
1: Absolutely. We have to look at these things in an empowering way. See, meditating on the time of death is good right now when you're not there. (laughs) And so what you're allowing yourself to do is you're forward pacing and fast forwarding it to the future and checking in with your future self and saying, hey, if I don't make this decision when I'm 30, when I'm 40, when I'm 50, are you going to be sad or mad or are you going to be good with it? And if the answer is you're going to be good with it, if you don't do it, then that's great. But if the answer is, you're probably going to look back and think, I should have asked her to marry me. I should have quit my job and pursued my passion. I should have, I could have. If that's your feeling when you're visualizing yourself, then you just get this inner sense of enthusiasm and this boost to actually go and chase it.
0: Mm, I love that. So true. And for anyone who hasn't read Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, read it. I've had Bronnie on my podcast. It's amazing. So I'll link to that in the show notes. We've spoken quite a bit about discipline and boundaries. I want to hear about your day. I want to hear about how you flow through your day. What are some of your routines, rituals, disciplines, and boundaries that you have put in place to set yourself up for success? Because just last weekend, I bumped into an old friend that I hadn't seen in a while. And she said to me, one of the things that I love about you, Melissa, is you are so disciplined with your time and you're not willing to waver on it. And I was like, oh, and then a part of me was like, well, should I be apologizing? Because she's like, no, you know, you aren't free between this time and this time. Like, that's when you're working. That's when you're writing. That's when you're podcasting. And she knows my phone will be on airplane mode and she won't get a response from me. And... It made me kind of think, initially, I was like, oh, is that a bad thing? Am I being a bad friend for not being available to all of my friends whenever they want? But then I thought, well, if I was constantly available, I would never get those things done. I would never write the books or the or do the podcasts and things like that. So I want to hear about your rituals, your disciplines, your routines, and talk us through a typical day for you.
1: Yeah, so I've I've been really focused over the past few years to create rules and exceptions as well, because I found that my life was changing so fast and so many new things were happening that I needed to have a plan B when plan A didn't work. So plan A, when things are smooth and and kind of in rhythm and in flow end up being that I'm able to wake up at about 6 a.m. every single day. I'm able to start meditating by 6.15. I'll meditate through to 7.45 to 8.15, depending on my meditation practice. It's usually about one and a half hours to two hours. And then I would be with my trainer in a gym exercising from about 8.15 to 9 a.m. And the first time I'd look at my phone in the day is 8.15 a.m. When I go to the gym. So I try and have that two hour block in the morning where I'm not checking my phone or my notifications. And I really love starting my day with meditation and exercise because I feel like those are the things that help me put on that shield, that help me put on that armor so that now I'm starting the day in the positive, in the plus. And those form two out of the four key habits that I recommend to everyone to do every day. And the other two are also part of my daily routine. And it comes in the form of the acronym TIME. So T-I-M-E, it's in the book, in the chapter around routines. There's a whole chapter dedicated to it. And the T stands for thankfulness. And I really believe that the first thought you want to have in the day is a thought of gratitude. So when we would wake up as monks at 4 a.m., and our collective prayers and meditations would start at 4.30 a.m., the first prayer and meditation was about gratitude. And it was engineered in that way because when you are present in gratitude, you can't be anywhere else. So if you're in a state of gratitude, you can't be in a state of anxiety. If you're in a state of gratitude, you can't be in a state of worry. So many of us today wake up in a state of worry in a state of anxiety. And so if your first thought can be a thought of gratitude, it can absolutely transform your day. And so I'm actually gonna ask you a question, Melissa. I want you to name two friends, they can be real or imaginary, but I need two names.
0: Rachel and Amanda.
1: Okay. So Rachel and Amanda, disclaimer, I do not know Rachel and Amanda. So anything I say about them from now on is completely fictional, but let's take Rachel and Amanda. So let's say after all of this COVID pandemic lockdown is over, Melissa and her husband throw a party and they invite Rachel and Amanda. Now they have a good time. And the next morning when Melissa wakes up and looks at her phone, She sees a text message. By the way, not straight away when she wakes up. She does all her morning rituals. I do
0: my meditation. (laughs) She does
1: her (laughs) meditations. And then when she looks at her phone, she sees messages from Rachel and Amanda. Rachel says, and again, Rachel, none of this is personal or about you, I promise, if you're a real person. But Rachel says, thank you, Melissa. Had a great time. Now, that's her message. And Amanda's message, when Melissa reads it, says, Melissa that was amazing. What an incredible party. I had the best time ever. The food was incredible. And the games we played were so fun. Your family and friends are all so beautiful. You know what? You made my 2020. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Now, Melissa is a grateful person. So chances are she'll feel grateful for both of those messages. But it's likely that Amanda's message is far more fulfilling to her heart because that thankfulness For it to truly work, for it to scientifically boost your mood, thankfulness and gratitude needs to be personalized and specific. So when we say we're grateful for the air or grateful for our hands or our body or our life, if it's not specific, if it's not personalized, you don't actually feel the effect of gratitude. You also don't feel the effect of gratitude if it just lives in your journal if it just lives in your heart and mind, it also needs to be expressed and shared with people. It needs to be an exchange of energy. And so the fact that both her friends reached out to her is great, but the one that's personalized and specific goes a step further. So remember in your own gratitude practice, and so I try and make a point every day to choose one person a day to send a voice note to, a text message, a FaceTime call, a video message, whatever it is, one person a day, how can I express personalized specific gratitude? Right? That's that's all it takes. So that's a really key habit for me. The I stands for inspiration. I think of inspiration like eating food. Every day you feel hungry. And you don't panic when you get hungry. You just know you need to find food and eat. But you don't go, oh no, why do I feel hungry today? I ate so much yesterday and I <laughs> ate so much last week. I shouldn't be hungry today. Like, why do I feel hungry today? That's not your panic. Your panic is why didn't i plan for my meal right like that's the panic but you're not panicking going oh my gosh why am i hungry i shouldn't be hungry so it's really strange when we don't feel inspired or motivated we we panic we go oh no why don't i feel inspired i'm i'm a negative person like i'm i'm not motivated like what's wrong with me well that's because we haven't fed ourselves and so we have to find something that inspires us daily you may say it's a quote that you see that you write, your favorite quote, and you put it on a post-it note next to your bed when you wake up in the morning. It may be a paragraph from a book. It may be listening to this podcast. Two of my best habits for inspiration were these two that I want to share with you, Melissa. One of them was around, I'd probably say like around seven years ago when I left Monk Life. Every day I would listen to Steve Jobs' Stanford commencement speech every single day to the point where I almost knew it off by heart And I cannot tell you how much that rewired the voice in my head and how much of that speech has inspired every step and decision I've made today. I had the fortune the other day of sitting down with Matthew McConaughey on my podcast. I was interviewing him for it. I think the episode comes out next Monday. And I was telling him that at one point in my life, in about 2014, 2015, I listened to his Oscars acceptance speech And it's about five minutes, and I would listen to it every single day for 30 days. And it was so profound listening to the same thing again and again and again to rewire my mind. So inspiration can come in all ways, whether you're an auditory learner or a kinesthetic learner or a visual learner. The point is you have to feed yourself every day. The third is meditation, which I mentioned before, and the E is exercise. So thankfulness, inspiration, meditation, and exercise it are priorities for me. And I'd like to add one more, which is S, which is sleep. I try not to negotiate with good sleep. So I've made a habit to always be in bed, ideally by 10 p.m., because I don't want to sleep later than that. The human growth hormone is most impactful between 10 to midnight. So if you're someone that says, well, Jay, I get eight hours or I get six hours after midnight, that does not compare... To six or eight hours when two hours are between midnight and 10 PM. Those two hours are more powerful than the two hours after midnight. So to me, those are some of my non negotiables. And those are some of the things that have just made practical into my daily life.
0: I love it. Thank you for sharing. That's so great and so easy to do and to remember time. I love it. Thank you for that. And then do you have boundaries around your work and around your phone and email? Do you have boundaries around that?
1: Yeah. So I the best boundaries I found is I liked having what I call no technology zones in the home and Ooh, no technology idea. times. So I almost tried to visualize a laser-like beam around a room and you have to almost visualize it. You may, you may get really creative and put tape all over your house. <laughs> and of it. But you almost want to visualize a laser-like thing where it's like, that's a no technology zone. Usually I recommend this to be the dining table, or the bedroom, because I think it's more fun to eat and sleep with people and be with people and connect with people in those spaces. And so you can choose what are the no technology zones in your home. And I think it's important to have no technology times in your home. So I find that my usage of my phone completely drops after 6, 6.30 PM in the evening when I stop working, apart from if obviously we have a big event or we have a big launch or When my book was out, I was constantly reading reviews and everything else and and everything to do with that. But apart from that, I try and really tone down that time and allow myself in the evenings to switch off from my phone. And again, like I was saying in the morning, not looking at it until I had done my basic meditation practice. And so I think having no technology zones and no technology times in the home, is a really practical way. And by the way, you're gonna break these rules. You're gonna get it wrong, I get it wrong all the time. But it's better to have a rule and to know your rules and boundaries as opposed to not have them. And you may break it, you may make a mistake, and that's fine, but at least you're conscious and intentional about your use.
0: Absolutely. I love that visual of visualizing the laser. I've never thought of it like that. And Nick and I are very intentional with that. Like we have no technology in the bedroom, no technology at the table, no technology when we're watching something. We're not sitting there watching something and scrolling Instagram. So I think having that visual is a really great thing to do. I'm a very visual person too. So I love that. And yeah, having these pockets of time and these zones in your home is such a great thing to do because social media, and I wanna talk to you about your social media journey too, but social media is causing so much anxiety for a lot of people comparison for a lot of people stops productivity. It distracts us. It's very noisy. And I want to know, do you feel like the work that you're doing is contributing to that? Like, do you sometimes feel like, oh my God, I'm contributing to all of this noise or do you feel like it's part of the solution?
1: Well, one of the things I've realized is social media, as we all know it, is not going away. So it's not going to disappear. And technology is not going to disappear. And I completely understand the challenges with how social media has been created and developed to try to get people to be addicted and to try and get them to consume more. And so the only way to try and use the platform for a higher good or a higher benefit is to try and infuse it because if people are going to be there anyway, if people are going to be on the platforms anyway, why not try and give them something that's actually going to help uplift them and find some inspiration and find some positivity and find a good message for the day? And so I almost see it as like, people are going to be there anyway. How can all of us as creators help people become more intentional about their use? So I don't find it ironic that we're talking about this on a digital platform, because actually what we're saying is, well, check with yourself and check in with yourself as to whether you're on there for the right reason. So if I find myself just scrolling through social media, I'll spot and I'll say, why am I here? And if I can't give myself a good enough reason, that's a great way to put the phone down. So I recommend you to do that as well, that only follow the accounts that you feel are helping you grow in whatever way you're trying to grow. For you, it may be fitness, it may be mindset, it may be financial or entrepreneurship. You need to surround yourself with that energy. Surround yourself with people that are different, even on social media, but people that are around the things that you're interested in. I think it's really powerful when people switch off from social media for a extended period of time Because it helps them realize how much social media is governing their choices and their mindset. But considering we're all going to find our way back onto it, it's important that we have that experience, but then set our own boundaries and limits. Because there's no point of oscillating between the extreme of like, I'm addicted, and now I try and avoid it for a week, but then I'm addicted again. And so it's better to go, okay, I'm addicted. I'm gonna go off of it to realize the benefits of not being on it all day. And then I'm going to find myself back slowly into the middle and monitor my progress. And I think the point is that everyone has to take responsibility because we have to, because that's all we have to realize how it can benefit our lives and how it cannot pull us down.
0: Mm, absolutely. I know for me personally, setting some boundaries around it, like time limits on my iPhone after 45 minutes, it says, you've done your 45 minutes for the day that for me is really helpful. And always asking myself before I open it, what is my intention? Why am I going on here? Am I going on to post? Am I going on to do a story? Am I going on to check DMs and comments? Am I going on to ask someone a question? What is my intention? So literally before I press the Instagram button, I ask myself that, what is my intention? Otherwise, you just find yourself like almost like a zombie and you're like, finger to the button and you start scrolling and you're like, what am I doing? Like you get in this trance and I watched The Social Dilemma. Have you seen that on Netflix?
1: I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard a lot of friends talk about it. And uh, I'd, I'd read a lot of Tristan's work about three or four years ago when uh, he, him and Ariana Huffington are, are very close too. And I remember when, when I was working at the HuffPost four years back, we did some work with him. And so, yeah, very aware of the themes that are inside of it.
0: Oh, I want to encourage everyone to go and watch it. It's really important and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Just popping in to tell you about Organifi, an all-natural, organic, vegan, super delicious superfood blend that I'm obsessed with. As you know, I'm a serious health nut and health is one of my top priorities and core values and something I don't skimp on. This is why I make sure to have my Organifi green juice daily. We all need more greens in our life and starting your day with these alkalizing nourishing greens is a great way to make sure you're getting more. But they don't just do greens. They also have a red juice, gold mushroom blends, clean protein powders, probiotic blends and so much more. And you can get 15% off everything storewide at Organifi.com forward slash Melissa. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash Melissa. And all you have to do is type Melissa at the checkout to get 15% off everything in your cart. How epic is that? Let's talk about anxiety for a minute because it's rife. Anxiety and fear and overwhelm, they're so big. If someone is experiencing that right now, what do you suggest?
1: Well, first of all, i definitely say that if you're experiencing anxiety, it's worth seeing a medical health professional, a therapist, someone who is medically qualified to work you through that anxiety. And I always say to people, like, don't wait for it to get really bad to turn to someone. So I was speaking to a good friend of mine yesterday. I've been doing a daily live for... World Mental Health Day, but we extended it for a week on Instagram. And I was speaking to Laurie Gottlieb, who's an incredible therapist. She wrote a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's a brilliant book. And she's been a therapist for relationships, couples, individuals for around three decades or more, I believe. So has a ton of experience. And she was saying to me that if someone injured their arm... And it was getting worse. They wouldn't wait to say, Oh, I'm going to wait till I have a broken arm to go to the doctor. If you've hurt your arm, you're going to go get checked out and see what's wrong with it. You're not going to wait till it gets really bad. And sometimes with our mind or our anxiety, we wait till it gets really bad before we do something about it. So I highly recommend seeing someone. Now, if you're someone who wants to be more proactive about it and you're someone who's experiencing anxiety and you want to do something right now, I've found that there are some incredible methods and techniques and practices that can truly help. One of my favorite ones is a method I learned living as a monk for grounding and centering. And today I've seen that psychologists and therapists use this to help people get out of their head because a lot of anxiety is us becoming fiction writers. So we've all watched too many movies (laughs) and we've read too many fiction books. And now we've become these directors of movies of, oh my gosh, what if this happens. And we get completely lost writing this what if chapter in our lives. And so, this practice that I learned as a monk, but has also been practiced by psychologists and therapists today, is really, really powerful. And it's called the 54321 method. And the way it works is you want to look around you and ask yourself, what are five things I can see? So, I can see the sky, I can see the ceiling, I can see the floor, I can see the wall. And one more thing, I can see the door. So what are the five things around me? And you can do it right now, wherever you're sitting, as long as you're not driving. What can you see? Then it's asking yourself, what are the four things I can touch? So I can touch the shirt that I'm wearing. I can touch the shorts that I'm wearing. I can touch the laptop. I can touch this book that I'm pretending is a tripod. (laughs) uh, And I can touch this marble table that I have in front of me. So four things that I can touch and really touch them. When you touch them, notice the texture. Notice the difference in the coolness and the warmth. This marble table is really, really cool. But the chair that I'm sitting on is far more medium. And the top I'm wearing is actually much warmer because of my body heat.
2: Notice those subtle things. Then what are the three things that you can hear? So be silent for a second. I can hear myself breathe. I can hear some white noise. I can hear Melissa thinking. (laughs) And so those are three things. What are the two things that you can smell?
1: Inhale. Could be nothing, but you may find I can definitely smell some sort of nature sense around my my home where I am right now. And then maybe nothing else. Or maybe, maybe I can smell a bit of, you know, my moisturizer or something like that. And then what's the one thing that I can taste? I can taste the lunch that I just had for sure. And so... When you do the five, four, three, two, one method, what you're doing is you're getting out of your head and you're getting into your physical space. A lot of the time, a lot of anxiety is experienced in our minds. When you look around you and you touch and you feel, you come back here to where you can make a change. And so that's been one of my favorite practices that I've done. Another one that I've really practiced is breath work. I'm a big practitioner and proponent of breath work. It was a huge part of our meditation as monks. And for me, my favorite breathwork practice, really simple, which I do multiple times per day when I feel anxious, is breathing in for a count of four and breathing out for more than four. So you want to extend your exhale. And this is the simplest form. You won't hyperventilate. It doesn't require any skill. And you want to practice something known as diaphragmatic breathing. And the best way to do that, which I was trained in, was placing your left palm on your stomach Breathing in through your nose and feeling your stomach come out. And breathing out through your
2: mouth and feeling your stomach go in. Breathing through your nose and feel your stomach come out. Breathing out through your mouth and feeling your stomach go in. Once more. In through your nose and your stomach out. Out through your mouth and your stomach in. Now, whether that feels natural or unnatural to you, diaphragmatic
1: breathing is optimal breathing. It's used by musicians who play wind instruments. It's used by singers who have to hit really high notes. It's used by athletes who have to run. And so whenever I find myself feeling out of sync, and I'll explain to you what that means, the reason why we feel a lot of stress and pressure in our lives is our mind is ahead of our body or our body is ahead of our mind. And I'll explain what I mean. How many times do you wake up in the morning and your mind is racing everywhere, trying to do everything, and your body's like, ugh, I just want to be in bed, right? Or you experience the opposite. Your body wakes up and you're running around doing lots of stuff, and your mind is like, ugh, I'm still in bed. And so our mind and our body are constantly out of sync. Even when you feel anxiety, your mind's kind of racing and your body's like trying to keep up with it. And so when you breathe in and out and you count your inhale and you count your exhale in for four, out for more than four, you're realigning your body with your breath and your mind with the count. And so you're bringing yourself back into sync. And I won't tell the story from the book, but to summarize it, breath work is really powerful because we look at all of our emotions in our life based on our breath. And I'll give you an example of positive and negative emotions. So positive emotions, that view is breathtaking or he or she takes my breath away. It's something that we say about a positive emotion, but we also use the word breath in a negative emotion. We say things like, let me just catch my breath. Or if someone shares some bad news with you, you say, I just need to take a breath. And so breath is intertwined and interconnected into every emotion we experience. What changes when you feel happy? Your breath. What changes when you feel sad? Your breath. And so when you learn to navigate your breath, you can really start to navigate every emotion that you experience. So those are some of the ways that I've definitely worked with anxiety. And the third principle, which I'd love to share more, which is more about anxiety and fear, is something in the book that I call the why ladder And you were talking about asking your intention, Melissa, which I thought was absolutely beautiful. And this is similar to that. And I want to give you an example of an anxiety or a fear I had and my wife had at the beginning of the lockdown. So, me and my wife, the first thing when we heard about the lockdown was, what if something happens to our parents back in London? So, me and my wife live in LA, our parents and our families are back in London, our our parents, our sisters, our nephew, our niece. You know, we have so much family back in, in London. And so our first fear and anxiety was, what if something happens to our parents? So the why ladder suggests, and this is something we learned as a as questioning, is asking yourself, why am I scared of that? So I was scared of my family and what if something happens to them in COVID? I said, why am I scared of that? I was scared because I wasn't there and I wouldn't be able to fly back if something happened to them and I wouldn't be able to spend time with them. And I asked myself, why am I scared of that? And I thought, because I haven't spent any time with them and I haven't seen them and I want to be with them and I miss them and I want to spend time with them.
2: And I asked myself, why am I scared of that? And I realized that the root of my anxiety and fear was I don't show them enough love.
1: I don't express my love to them enough. So my fear was that I can't go back, but really at the heart of it, my fear was I'm not calling them enough. I'm not messaging them enough. I'm not present enough for them. I'm not showing as much love as I think they deserve. And that is a fear that is useful and healthy because you can do something about it. And that's what we have to do. When you have this conversation with yourself and you ask yourself, why, 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 you get to the root of the worry and something that's actually actionable. And that's how you turn anxiety into action.
0: Oh, I love these so much. So great. Such great techniques. And I particularly love the 54321. For children as well, because I have a 14-year-old stepson and I can imagine sharing that with him and getting him to do those five, four, three, two, ones and really helping them. Because I feel like children as well, you know, the younger generation, they're the first generation, his generation. To have grown up with phones during those primary school, I think you guys might call it middle school years. And so they are experiencing so much more anxiety than ever before. So a little technique like that could really help them. So I love those. Thank you so much. We've spoken about meditation and you have a beautiful meditation practice in the mornings that you do. I practice Vedic meditation with the mantra. What type of meditation do you practice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I do three types. The first is breath work, second is visualization. And the third, which is the most prominent that I do for the longest, is mantra meditation. So we share that in common. And for me, the mantra, even when I teach it and I share it because I'm a meditation coach and I and I and I work with several people on their meditation practices, I've seen that mantra has been one of the most powerful ways that people are able to really switch off the noise and direct their attention towards the sound. And here's the thing about sound is that we don't realize the power sound has on us every day, whether it's the tone of someone's voice, whether it's the news on in the background all day, whether it's a song that nostalgia kicks in and takes us back to a past memory, sound has the ability to transport us. And so spiritual sound, sacred sound, these vibrations and frequencies have the ability to connect us to our higher selves, to another dimension. And so for me, I find mantra meditation to be truly powerful, but I find that the way I've understood it and the way I learned it and the way I share it is that breath work is for the body, visualization is for the mind, and mantra or sound is for the soul and the heart.
0: No, I love and that.
1: so I've found that visualization is great for our mind and emotions. And what I often do with visualization is I use it in three ways and I teach it in three ways. One is, what if you've got a memory with someone that you didn't like the way you behaved or you didn't like the way you responded in a scenario? I often encourage people to revisit that memory and relive it with the intention of being their best selves in that memory. I remember having a friend who regretted his last moments with his father because he didn't well, it was an accident so he didn't know his father was going to pass away and he was—he swore at his father and they argued and they that was their last interaction. He had no idea that his father was going to die and he kept reliving that memory in a way that he couldn't change it but re-visualizing it allowed him to revisit it and allowed him to say to his father what he wished he would have said and, and that was extremely healing and, and calming for him. Another way I use visualization is preparation. So if I'm scared about something or anxious about something, I'll visualize myself doing the practice and the process. So I don't visualize the result. I visualize the process. I'll, I'll give an example of this. Earlier this year, literally January this year, Sony Pictures and the team had reached out to me because they wanted me to be a part of the promo for the Bad Boys movie. And I was super nervous because I'd never done something like that before. And obviously I said, yes, because I'm a big fan of the bad boys movies. And I said, yes. And I was like, okay, I need to get an acting coach and I need to figure this out. And so I started calling around. I I went to acting coaching for three days and I would visualize myself being on set with Martin Lawrence and Will Smith and just kind of just going back and forth and memorizing my lines in that process and just visualizing it. So often if I'm scared of going on stage, I'll visualize myself walking on that stage. I'll visualize myself going up the steps. Which side of the steps am I going to walk on? I'll visualize myself moving through a PowerPoint presentation. So I'm not visualizing people thinking it was the best presentation. I'm not visualizing me crushing it. I'm visualizing me doing the parts that I'm scared about and just walking myself through it. And the third way I think visualization can be really powerful is reconnecting with a positive past memory or a place and extracting the energy out of it. There may be a place that you can't visit right now because of COVID, but it's really important to you. Guess what? You can go there in your mind. If I ask you right now to think of a vacation you've been on, you're there right now mentally. You can see that beach. You can see that boat. You can see the place you lived in. Visualization will be really powerful to go back to a place and extract the energy of calm. Breathe at the pace that memory is in. Think at the pace that memory is in and you'll extract all of that energy into this moment right now.
0: Mm, Beautiful, so helpful. Everything that you do now, the books, the podcast, the YouTube, all of your social media, do you see yourself doing this in 10, 20, 30, 40 years or do you see yourself maybe going back to that monastic life?
1: (laughs) That's a great question, Melissa. I'd say that the first thing is that I was doing what I do today online, offline for a decade before I did it online. So when I met the monk at 18, as I mentioned, the thing I did after spending my first bit of time with him in the monastery in those few years was I started a society or a club at university called Think Out Loud. And every single week I take a movie or a topic and I would break it down psychologically, philosophically, scientifically, and spiritually. So we take a movie like Inception, and we talk about the characters and the mind. And when I launched it, we'd get about five to 10 students coming. And by the time I left university, there were almost hundred students coming sometimes. And I was sharing these messages and teaching from the age of 18 to 28, when there were no followers, there was no social media, there was nothing, there was no money involved. I did those sessions for free. And so when I took everything online and in the last three or four years where I've been building everything you were sharing, it's been incredible to see the response. And I almost see this as being my highest calling and purpose now to be engaged in this way. And even the transition from living as a monk to doing what I do now, I realize that I'm even more better placed where I am today and I feel much more in flow and aligned with who I really am than when I was a monk. And that's why the book and my principles are called Think Like a Monk, Don't Live Like a Monk, because I think that everyone can upgrade their mind without having to change their external life. Granted, we may never reach the heights that monks reach because of their dedicated pursuit, but even the glimpses that we can experience through these practices are phenomenal upgrades in our own life. So I don't envision that. But having said that, every year, me and my wife go back for two to three weeks a year to the ashram I lived in as a monk. And we live there together. And so I feel like I get my monk boost every single year where I go back, reconnect. Uh, I hope I get to go back next year. I was there this January. I was there last January in December as well. And so I, I really hope I get to do that because that really keeps me feeling that that stillness and that connection. So I don't think I'd ever go back to it fully, but I could definitely see myself extending that two to three weeks to a month, to two months, to three months potentially in my life, but I couldn't see it bring my whole life. But who knows?
0: Yeah. Who knows what's around never corner. Never say never. Yeah. Exactly. What's your definition of success and what do you attribute your success to?
1: So to define success in the way I do, I have to define happiness or, or meaning and purpose. And so for me, these are all separate concepts. So success is, in terms of my definition of success, success is gaining the external validations, awards, recognitions that, that exist in the world. That to me is success. But my definition of joy and meaning in life is purpose. Like that's what I seek. I seek purpose every single day. And purpose as described by Dharma in the Bhagavad Gita and other Vedic texts, is the synergy between passion, our strengths, and our compassion. So I seek purpose daily. And a natural byproduct of purpose is success because when we're developing our expertise and our strengths and we naturally have an inclination towards something and we use it to serve others compassionately, it's natural that may invite external success. The reason why I define success in that external way is I think sometimes we mistake success and happiness and we get confused. We expect that if we're successful, we'll be happy, or we demand that if we're happy, we'll be successful. And that's just not true. I've met many people who are successful, i.e. rich, famous, notable awards, but are not happy or purposeful. And I've met people who are extremely happy and joyful, but are not successful. Like they don't have the home and the car and the money. And so to me, it's really important to, to not get those words mistaken. So I pursue purpose in life. It's what I've always done. I've wanted to wake up every day and do what I love in a way that helps other people love themselves. And that's what I choose to be my purpose. But I accept that success is this external thing that has its uses, but it gives you what it is. If you desire to be successful, all you'll get is success, but it won't lead to happiness or purpose. But it is a valid contribution and a valid need in the world because without it, sometimes it's very hard to do the other things that you want to do. And so I don't try to demonize or idolize anything that comes under the bracket of success. I think sometimes we can demonize money or idolize money. We can demonize fame or we can idolize fame. And the monk perspective is it's neutral. Both of these things can be used as positively or as negatively as you like, but they inherently are not good or bad.
2: Mm,
0: I love that. I love it. What's bringing you the most joy in your life right now? (sighs)
1: <sighs> that's, a, that's a wonderful question. I think what's bringing me the most joy in my life right now is realizing that there are so many incredible things that happen in my life that I don't plan for. So I have things that are in my plan and in my journey, and then so many things come that are complete surprises and complete moments of of just joy and remembrance that I didn't make those things happen personally or directly. And that's what I think is the joy of life when you allow it to be received, is you'll have your plan, and then life will have a plan. And sometimes life's plan will open you up to opportunities you never imagined. And so I often say to people that you'll get to where you want in life, just not in the way you imagined it. And I think for a lot of us, we're trying to get to where we want in life the way we imagined it. And the challenge with that is you have your projector screen up here that's rolling Presenting this imaginary version of what your journey looks like. And then down here in reality, in real life, you have what's actually happening. And while you're fixated on your projector screen version, you miss out on what's happening here. And because they don't match, you think you're on the wrong path. But actually, that that visualization, that path that you had in your head isn't even the reality of it. And so for me, that's what brings me the greatest joy in my life right now. If you want a more specific answer as an activity, I can give that to. But I have to say, when I thought of the word joy, I was like, I just feel this like joy in my heart when I get a random phone call with an opportunity or I get introduced to someone I never imagined that would I'd be friends with or, you know, something like that that happens. Those are the moments I feel like that joy in my body, and my mind, and my heart.
0: I love that. Beautiful. What are you working on or would like to work on or improve within yourself at the moment?
2: Yeah. Yes. I think the
1: biggest thing for me right now that I'm working on is, the funny thing is, it was the same thing I had to work on at the beginning and it's the thing you're still working on now. It's always making sure that what you're pursuing is what you truly want and being able to weed out everything else because there are so many more opportunities that come your way. There are so many more demands on your time. There are so many more interesting and exciting propositions uh, there are so many things that people would tell you you shouldn't be doing by now or should have figured out, whether that's investment ideas, real estate, whatever it is, you know, the millions of things that you see all the time, and just kind of reflecting and checking in and going, "Is that what I want to do, or am I doing it because I think I have to do it? I think that is something I'm constantly working on, because I just think that as life gets busier and more complex, you get further and further away from who you want to be. And I keep trying to go back to I want to be. Who I am, and and I want to reconnect with who that is, and so I am still trying to do that every day. And I don't think that will ever go away, and that's fine. I am okay with that. And and yeah, I think that's what I am working on still today.
0: I love that; so important. Now, let's pretend you have a magic wand, and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the entire world. Besides Think Like a Monk, which absolutely should be in the school curriculum and we'll link to it in the show notes, of course, what is one other book you would choose?
1: That's a wonderful question. I would say it would have to be Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. It's hard. I, would have, I was probably going to go for a Malcolm Gladwell book, but I wouldn't know which one to choose because I love all of them. But I'd have to go for Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. It's just the best understanding of the mind and how we make decisions and how the mind works and i think what was missing at school was mind school and understanding your mind and emotions and so i'd have to say daniel kahneman's thinking fast and slow
0: awesome i'll link to that in the show notes i've actually not read it so i'm excited to read that
1: it's a bit of a science geek trip like you've got to really want to get into it from like that kind of geeky perspective of science but I've never heard a book explain the mind better than that book. It's unbelievable. And Daniel Kahneman, I believe, is a Nobel Peace Prize receiver or, or you know, he's, he's, he's extremely accomplished. And so I don't even think he's written that much more, but that was a book that I was really lucky to read in early on and
2: it's incredible.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that. I've got three little rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. What is one thing that we can do today for our health?
1: Mm, drink celery juice. <laughs> I'm a massive fan of celery juice. I love it. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, if you want to reduce inflammation, if you want to clear out toxins, if you want to feel fresh and amazing, I have become the biggest proponent of celery juice in my in my friend circle, probably not digitally, but at least at least with people that I know offline. If you like that one, we can stick with That's it. That's
0: perfect. But- it's perfect. I love it.
1: Yeah, fine. <laughs>
0: Okay, what's one thing that we can do for more wealth, so more abundance in all the areas of our life?
1: So there's a beautiful, beautiful Sanskrit word named mudita. And mudita means to feel joy in others' success. Mm. So it's been described that we know how to feel pain when other people feel pain. That's what we call empathy or compassion, but we don't know how to feel joy when other people feel joy. And in Think Like a Monk, I talk about this because I talk about how there are an infinite number of seats in the theater of happiness. But because we live in a finite world, we've believed that there are only X number of tickets in that concert. There are only X number of seats, limited number of seats in that sports game. There are only this many people that have the opportunity to be abundant, wealthy, and successful. And as soon as you put a limit in your mind and believe that there are only a finite number of seats, you can't enjoy the show. And so Mudita is the perspective of saying, if I can feel joy for someone else's success and realize that takes nothing away from me because there's infinite number of seats. And actually forget infinite number of seats. There is a seat with your name on it. There are tickets with your name on it in the theater of happiness sitting there waiting for you. But because you want someone else's seat so bad, because you're chasing someone else's seat so bad and they're already sitting on it, your seat's lying there empty. And so if you just claim your seat, and so if we can experience other people's joy, if we can uh, look to celebrate other people's successes and joys, then that will open up abundance in our life. A, because we're now part of their success. Have you ever noticed that when you celebrate someone else's success, you're a part of their success? So you're doing that. Second, you get to learn from their journey. See, when you're envious or you compare, you don't get to learn. So you've lost everything. Whereas when you celebrate someone, you get to go, "Oh, well, what did they do right?" Notice how if you're criticizing someone who's won or you're negative towards them, you go, "Oh, well, they've got—I've got nothing to learn from them. It was easy from them. Who cares about them?" But if you go, "Wait a minute, they got something right. What did they do?" You can learn from them. So the first thing is, you're a part of their success. The second thing is you learn from them or their journey. And the third thing is you realize that there's a seat with your name on it. And if you can do that, abundance and wealth and everything will come and you start to follow your own path, as the Gita says, which I quote in the book, it's better to follow your own path imperfectly than to try to pursue someone else's path perfectly. And so allowing yourself to just chase that seat that has your name on it is far better than trying to get in someone else's seat. Exactly. Sorry, not very rapid fire, but I wanted to explain it. (laughs) It's
0: all good. Last one. What is one thing that we can do for more love in our life?
2: The thing that came to my mind was just about, you know, being able to understand love better and to give
1: more of it after understanding it. So I think immaturely just trying to be love or give love can can be confusing and actually can be hurtful sometimes to yourself. But to really try to understand what love is in different scenarios with different people, in different relationships, if we can truly try to understand how to love people in different ways, how to love ourselves and understand what that means. Like I'll give you this example. Like, you know, someone says, I love you. And they mean, I want to spend the night with you. And someone says, I love you. And they say, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But the problem is when you hear the word love and they hear the word love, you're projecting your definition onto their word. And so the first thing I'd say is define love. Because if I say love, you think of your definition of love. And so you just say, I love you back without actually checking whether our definitions even match and we just assume we feel the same way. So one of the ways to experience more love or receive more love or feel more love is to define love for what it is for you so that you can look for it more clearly. You can't look for something that you don't understand or you can't feel something you don't understand. And I think right now our definitions, personal and collective of love, are very hazy.
0: Mm, Absolutely. That's a really beautiful answer. Thank you. I loved that is there anything else that you want to share? Is there any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to chat about? This has been so insightful already and I want to encourage everyone to grab your book and to listen to your podcast and check out everything that you're doing because it's incredibly inspiring. But is there anything else or any last parting words of wisdom?
1: I just want to say thank you to you. This was so wonderful. Like it was, it was absolutely beautiful to have this conversation with you, to get to just share energy and you hold space so wonderfully and guided this conversation so gracefully. And I loved it. And it's just, it's so nice to be able to connect with, I was on a trip this weekend and one of the people I was traveling with, he made this really, really nice contribution and statement And he was saying that we don't need to just be around like-minded people. We need to be around like-hearted people. And I thought that that was a really beautiful sentiment. And uh, I felt that way with you today. So thank you, Melissa. I appreciate you. And I'm grateful to you and uh, thankful to you for being a like-hearted soul and mind. And uh, I'm, I'm just really glad we got to spend this time together.
0: Thank you so much. Me too. And before I go, I have one last question for you everything that you do, all of the work that you do is of service. Coming back to what we said at the very start of this conversation, you know, that's such a big, important part of your life is being of service through your books, your podcast, everything that you do on social media, your videos. So I want to know how I and the listeners can give back to you. How can we serve you today? Because you give so much to everybody else. How can we give back to you?
1: I genuinely think the way you can give back is by trying your best to live any of what's resonated with you today. That That's the best way, because if you live it, you'll pass it on to your kids and your partners and your families and your work friends. And that's the greatest gift anyone can give me or anyone else is if any of this resonated with you. Even if today didn't resonate with you, there was another episode on Melissa's podcast that resonated. Just trying to live by any of these incredible insights, wisdom and principles that exist in the world already, that's the best service to anyone and everyone and, and to the planet. And I always feel that way that, you know, if everyone was just trying to improve themselves in whatever way they can, that's that's the best service. So, yeah, that would be amazing.
0: Yes, we can definitely do that. Jay Shetty, this has been amazing it's been so much fun I could talk to you for days I think we
1: could we really could yeah (laughs) definitely I could talk to you for days too
0: yeah I would love and I want oh your wife I'm obsessed with her I just think she is the most hilarious (laughs) person ever so yeah thank you for everything that you do in the world thank her as well she's such a light and so much fun to follow on Instagram and keep shining and thank you so much for being here today and sharing your love and wisdom with
1: us Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to finally meeting at one point. So I look forward to that. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. Loved this conversation so much. What a beautiful person, full of wisdom. I could have spoken to him for hours. I got so much out of it. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a review in iTunes or on your podcast app. Because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And speaking of the review of the week, I want to read this week's review and it is from Renee. It's a five-star review titled, An Incredible Eye-Opening Podcast. And Renee says, I absolutely love listening to Melissa's podcast. Her chats are so real and relatable. She's easy to listen to and it always makes my week tuning into her weekly episodes. Thank you so much, Renee, for that beautiful review. I'm so grateful. And as a little thank you, I want to gift you my wildly wealthy guided meditation. And this goes for anyone who leaves me a review. All you have to do is email me a screenshot of your review to hello at melissaambrosini.com and I will email that over to you. And if you want to get my Bursting with Love guided meditation, you can leave a review on Amazon for either of my books, Mastering Your Mingo or Open Wide. And the same deal applies if you rate and review my brand new Audible book, Purposeful. All you have to do, guys, is email me in a screenshot of your review. And for Purposeful, I'm going to gift you my Manifestation Masterclass totally free. So email me in a screenshot of your review on Audible or on Amazon or on iTunes and I will gift you some goodies. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I love reading them all. And for everything that Jay and I mentioned in today's show, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 367. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now.